This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Thanks for downloading another stimulating, wonderful episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 67.1, and we'll explain why it is so here in a little bit. But first, I want to welcome from Minnesota, an assistant professor of English at Crown College, Mr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm pretty good. You know, trying to get back into the swing of the semester, the swing of the podcast. I have a little froggy because I was sick last week. Yeah, I'm I'm getting a little froggy myself, unfortunately. I think that comes with January. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that deafening silence you hear is not David Grubbs. Uh, David is teaching a J-term course and editing the school yearbook this month. How do you uh, think so David's he... going to be able to survive that, Nathan? <sighs> I, I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> I... I, I actually forgot that stock clip, Michael, as useful and as ubiquitous as it is. Uh, I had forgotten and, it. And our, our listeners should expect to hear more of it uh, as, as, the, uh, as this show goes on. <laughs> now, 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 here's the question, Michael. Have I dropped any sound clips that are going to be perennial yet, or have I managed well, well, to dodge the landmines? I have that clip because I had to... He, you asked him on one episode what the next episode was going to be about, and there was this uh, kind of horrified pause, and he says, crap. <laughs> so um, he called me up later in the day. We, we recorded him saying, I haven't the faintest idea, so that we could drop it in there. So he's not just, he's not just standing like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> but uh, so, 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 no, I don't have anything for you because... The, yeah, that, that okay, was Okay, so it, it didn't happen though. in the in the flow of the show. It actually happened as a separate session. Right. I don't have the energy to go through and uh, select our, our craziest moments. Oh, that's good. That's good. We don't do a year in review show or anything like that. I mean, what sort of podcast would do something so ridiculous? Yeah, not that any respectable podcast would do that or beg for money or... Uh, <laughs> 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 At any rate, Michael... Uh, since David is doing that J-term thing, you and I will be doing the an episode a week for the last couple of weeks of January, and then Grubbs will join us in February, for a while anyway, uh, until baby comes along, then presumably he will go on a brief paternity leave. Isn't the uh, kid due in May, though? Oh, really? See, if for some reason I had in my mind it was something more like March, but Maybe it you're is, probably I right. You could be right. I don't, I don't know anything. Yeah, we're, we're men listeners, so we don't keep track of these things. <laughs> <laughs> don't let it throw uh, over my carpet and I don't care there you go there you go uh, on the blog this month since the last time we recorded was our Christmas episode uh, a couple book reviews weekly bible posts some links posts uh, any other material out there I am I just got the book in the mail yesterday I am at some point going to find this time to review the new book American Nietzsche about Nietzsche's reception in America Oh, that's cool. But I haven't begun reading it yet, so um, that, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that review then. Uh, oh, also, I I wrote a brief response to the viral video "Jesus is Greater Than Religion." Uh, it has gotten some play on Facebook. It's gotten a few comments here on our site. 
Uh, it's not the best response out there. A lot of people have written better things about it, but I figured uh, since I have said, I believe on this podcast, Michael, that I am religious but not spiritual, I, I figured that was a clip that I probably should respond to. And I'm glad you did, because I found, I found that clip inexplicably aggravating, and you kind of put into words why. Now, you know, um, Kevin DeYoung also responded to that clip, and, the, <laughs> yes. and along much the same lines, and the, and the kid wrote into him and said that he was right and that he had painted with too broad a brush, and that if he'd known the no clip kidding. was going to be that popular, he probably wouldn't have made it uh, so black and white. So, um we we shouldn't look down on that kid too much. He seems like a very uh, thoughtful young man. I say yeah, kid. I, I have I no idea how old the guy is. Yeah, I mean he he seems like he's somewhere in his mid twenties, if I had to guess. Yeah. So since I'm in my late twenties, I can call him kid because I'm you know, yeah. so much so much older and wiser than him. Right, and since but, I'm in my mid thirties, I'm pretty much ancient. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, no wonder you like religion, old man. There you go. <laughs> But but yeah yeah so I, I not not only not only does the guy admit that the clip is unnuanced he um well I guess there's no but also there the 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 guy admits the clip is unnuanced he doesn't exactly apologize for making it but he says if he had to do it over again he would have done it differently well that's pretty cool I'll, yeah. I'll have to go look over at Kevin DeYoung's site and see what it has to say it's, but it's, it's one of the it's one of the rare times that an internet discussion ends with greater understanding for all parties you know what i mean that's kind of what i was thinking i you know and listeners if you want to refer back to our godwin's law episode for why it usually doesn't happen that way you're welcome to do so uh, michael the, the the first couple episodes of this new semester and i, I you keep track of the season numbers what season are we on okay i'll, I'll take that uh, and of course, we have unfortunately, uh, and I realize I'm I'm turning correlation into causation, uh, but we've driven off yet another Christian liberal arts podcast, the uh, CWC, the radio show. It seems is going on hiatus for a season. Uh, Sam, Chris, Sarah, um, Amy. Oh yeah, Amy. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's four of them. Uh, if any of you happens to be listening to this, and I'm wrong about that, by all means, post it on the show notes for today and tell us no we haven't gone away rumors of our hiatus are greatly exaggerated but uh they are as far as i know judging by the last episode of 2011 taking a semester off uh i guess to recharge so you know since middlebrow now does about one show every other semester and uh i don't i mean do you count entitled opinions as a catholic podcast or just a no it's just Dante a, just a- just a liberal arts <laughs> podcast, although you know it's just a liberal arts. It's one, it's they one of the about, absolute best. Oh yeah, unfortunately, they only do about two episodes a semester anymore. <laughs> I don't think that that's not true. They did they did five or six episodes last year, last semester. Oh well, <laughs> I, I know they're not. But as... at any rate, at any rate, listeners, we are now one of your last stops for liberal arts on the internet, at least in a podcast format. So thank you for coming back to us. And hopefully if we keep uh, shaming and spreading misinformation about uh, these other podcasts, they will come back and start making episodes again, because I really like them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. But these two uh, decimal episodes, and of course we do a decimal episode anytime one of the triumvirate is not present, uh, we'll deal with a couple books that uh, Michael and I enjoy a great deal. Uh, they are 
popularizing books. You know, they're not breaking new philosophical ground like Heidegger's Being in Time did, uh, but they are certainly bringing certain ideas to a larger audience in a way that Michael and I both find impressive. Which and means the first they're easy to read, do, too, which is, which, is, which is great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, compared to Heidegger, who isn't. But the first book uh, is one that Michael and I have actually both used in our composition classes. Uh, if you don't like our more English teacher wonky episodes, then I do apologize for this one, but next week will be better. Uh, if you do like these episodes, if you're one of those people who think that our Richard Weaver episodes were some of our best, then settle in because we're going to talk about the Office of Assertion. Now, Michael, this is a book that you and I have both used, like I said, in freshman composition classes. Since David's not here, we're going to have to shoulder some of the burden of setting things in historical and biographical context. So let me do my shoot from the hip context bit. Uh, Scott Kreider, first of all, is a professor at the University of Dallas, uh, which is one of the great conservative Catholic universities, in my opinion. He also published this book under the imprimatur of Intercollegiate Studies Institutes, ISI, which is one of the great conservative academic organizations in my opinion. So given the book's conservative credentials, Michael, uh, what about the book's content sets it off as a conservative freshman composition book? Nothing explicitly does. You know what I mean? It, it, it does not in any way suggest you should have this or that political belief, this or that religious belief. So, I mean, if, if we have listeners on the more liberal side of things, Listening, that the the book is by no means any kind of political tract. Uh, the the reason you might call it conservative is because it promotes a view of rhetoric and the teaching of rhetoric that is old fashioned, that is that is fallen out of favor. That's classical, but that you don't see used very much anymore. And we're, I know we're going to talk in a few minutes about what uh, how freshman comp gets taught if you're not teaching it Kreider's way, but. Uh, Kreider essentially suggests that we should learn rhetoric under the Aristotelian method. And while he does not um, necessarily lay the method out as explicitly Aristotelian, it is, in the end, uh, kind of a modern updating of Aristotle's rhetoric. So that's what's conservative about it, is it reaches back to the past in a way that other freshman comp handbooks don't. Mm-hmm. And also, one of the things that marks it off as conservative in my mind is that he works with the assumption that a college freshman should be writing papers about Homer and Plato and the great old texts right? Uh, rather than about pop culture topics. Now, we, we should Just, point out, um, this is not a, uh, a reader of any sort. It, it, it has one essay from a student in it. But it doesn't have readings for your freshman comp class, so if you use it, you have, no, to, not pair by it, you have to pair it with some sort of anthology. And I found one um, that is similarly conservative. It's called uh, Reading the World, Ideas That Matter by Michael Austin. And mm -hmm. it, it has a selection of old-timey texts on a variety of topics. So, like, there's a section on um, science, for example. And there's science going all the way back to the Greeks. And, you know, there's modern stuff as well. I, I think Edward O. Wilson is in there. Mm -hmm. So I, I found, for, for the reason you mentioned, I found that 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 anthology worked very well with Kreider because they're they're both they both do assume, as you say, that freshmen shouldn't be writing about Facebook and MySpace, but should be writing about Plato <laughs> and Homer. 
Right. And the anthology I use, you might have heard of it, Michael. It's called uh, Republic by Plato. <laughs> uh, we... <laughs> well, you know, I'm not I'm not quite I'm not quite as good as you. So I, I, I use short readings. I do. You know, I sign the Phaedrus. OK, that's cool. That's cool. See, but... I don't assign that except to my upper division English major. So we, we all have... of the. I do four units in my freshman comp class, which we yeah we call English comp here, and uh, the first one is the Phaedrus, and then there's three units out of Michael Austin, on three okay, different that's topics. Okay, cool. that's so, cool. So so uh-huh. you know there's various, but the point here is to to use Kreider effectively in a freshman comp class, you're going to have to pair him with some sort of reading that 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 shares a shares his mentality whether you're actually going back to the source like uh, good teachers do or whether you just use an anthology like me. Right. Now, another alternative, of course, is that a teacher could use this with extensive in-class exercises, actually practicing these skills. Which um, I've never been very good at. Now, yeah, well, and, and the only other problem with that is finding subject matter for the papers. Right. I mean, honestly, that's that's why I assigned Plato's Republic, so that we have interesting subject material, uh, so that we can actually do what Kreider wants us to do, namely write about the old questions that have stuck around. So yeah, yeah, yeah. To just do the in-class writing assignments suggests that students are uh, educated enough already to be able to speak intelligently on these topics. And the truth is, they're probably not. Right. And that's I, you know, why I they come to when college. I was a <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I mean, there's no shame in that. I'm not putting them down. But there's a there's a school of comp theory that says, well, you know, they're already ready to. To, to right, write what the, they need uh, to write. Right, and to associate it with the name, I mean, it's the Peter Elbow School of Personal Experience Writing, mm-hmm. that any student should be able to come in and write something interesting simply based on what's come before in the student's life. And, of course, the you know the more conservative, and I'll keep coming back to that word, the more conservative view is that you know you actually have to enter into a conversation with previous generations in order to start saying anything remotely interesting. Right. Yeah, in a broader sense. I mean, anybody could presumably write an interesting narrative essay about some some event in their life, but Uh, that's not interesting in the way Kreider would say uh, student writing should be interesting, or or I assume the way you and I think student writing should be interesting. I don't even do a narrative essay. Right. Well, at any rate, Michael, uh, let's let's get into Kreider's actual practice of rhetoric as he lays it out here his, his discussion begins with uh aristotle's assertion from book one chapter two of the rhetoric uh that rhetoric is a faculty or a power of discovering or seeing that which is persuasive uh to set Kreider in conversation with a larger academic scene uh what makes this return to aristotle a departure from what goes on in many freshman composition classrooms in america i i i hear very few I heard, I should say, very few freshman comp teachers at UGA talking about discovering things that are persuasive. They may talk about persuasion, but it assumes that the student has an opinion that he must persuade the professor of, or persuade the reader of, uh, of the, the of, uh, you know, the truth of. And um, Kreider is certainly not interested in that. Kreider is interested in, in, in writing, in rhetoric, as a search for what is good and, and, and an attempt to move the 
reader towards what is good. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we're not going to disagree on what's good and bad, but it does suggest that there is a truth out there that goes beyond mere opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you don't even like to use the words fact and opinion in your freshman comp classes. Do you want to go on that rant now? No, no. Yeah, that is one of the forbidden words in my freshman comp class. I tell them, do not speak the O word, uh, because I want them to be discovering. I mean, you know, to use Kreider's word that he gets from Aristotle, uh, I want this to be a common search on the part of my students for the truth. So what I tell them is, you know, I mean, in the process of your writing, you need to be examining your own writing you know, not so that you can score more points against some imaginary debate opponent, uh, but so that you can discover the truth in whatever it is you're writing about. And I mean, that that whole idea that rhetoric is discovery is one of those places where Aristotle is decidedly inheriting, you know, an idea from Plato's Gorgias, right? You know, I mean, after Plato uh, debunks and discredits rhetoric as it is practiced by Gorgias the Sophist, uh, he goes on to say that there is a possibility for a good and a true rhetoric, uh, but that rhetoric always has to be hand-in-hand hand with philosophy, is the word that Plato uses. And, of course, uh, Aristotle, in the rhetoric, says that uh, rhetoric always has to be a dancing partner with dialectic. Mm-hmm. It always has to be the antistrophe to dialectic's strophe. Uh, so, I mean, the idea, you know, for both of those writers, I know a lot of people like to pretend that Plato and Aristotle never agree on anything, uh, except for a certain pop theology book that said that Aristotle is basically the sequel to Plato, but that I've already written about. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, this is one of those places where Aristotle is definitely taking, you know, the big idea that Plato ends with in the Gorgias and says, all right. Could we imagine an art, a techne of rhetoric that emerges out of that? So, I mean, I, th- I think that it is like, you know, like you said, Michael, it's very, very different from the sort of um, debate society rhetoric that often gets taught in freshman comp uh, in that it assumes that you are searching for truth even as you perform rhetoric. Go ahead. You, I cut you off there. Yeah, the question is, is, there, is do you think there's a middle ground between Gorgias the Sophist and... Aristotle's rhetoric. I mean, do you think that Aristotle went along with Plato there because the only other alternative was going along with Gorgias? Oh, I see what you're saying. Is, is there a middle ground between rhetoric as leading the soul of the reader towards the good and rhetoric as persuading the reader of anything? I don't know. You seem to be implying that there is, but I, I can't formulate one I right I now. I don't do you know. Have something I, in mind? Not, not a rhetorical <laughs> question. I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking. I can't think of... I can't think of what that middle ground would look like. I'm open to the uh-huh. possibility it might exist. Right. But, now, part of it is that I've been influenced by Richard Weaver to think of those two as the two basic possibilities for rhetoric. So right. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about any sort of tertium quid. So Yeah, yeah on the other hand, you've, you went through grad school in the humanities, which much means you're, it has to mean you're uncomfortable with dichotomy to some extent. I am, I am, but I think that there is capacity within Aristotle's view for more than a singular truth. Mm-hmm. In other words, I mean, if, if I can pull some Heidegger into Aristotle, I think that truth is always a process. It's always aletheia. It's always unignoring things. So it's always something that is not complete as long as we're Dasein. So, so there's, a, there's a possibility under Aristotelian 
Criderian, if you want to put it that way, rhetoric uh -huh. of people coming to opposite conclusions and yet still practicing good or noble rhetoric, I think is Crider's term, noble rhetoric yeah. instead of base rhetoric. You, you, uh, oh, practicing I think so. noble yeah, rhetoric yeah. is not the same thing as having the objective truth. Right, right. And I, and I would just point to Plato's dialogues as an example of this, right? I mean, the idea is that you're always striving towards truth, and you can always have intimations that you are drawing near to truth, but you never state that the assertion that I just made is the final truth that can never be refined. Right, right. Now, I, and ju just in case our listeners, you know, think that I'm slipping into some sort of uh, cheap relativism, uh, I do think that, you know, there's a difference between the final formulation of reality as it is and the content of divine revelation. So, in other words, I think that the Bible is true. I also think that we always ought to be refining the way that we read and we submit ourselves to the Bible. Which is so in other words, just you know, what I told I, I want to hold both the other day. Okay, yeah, and go ahead since you taught it recently. Uh, well, but, I mean, we, we were we were talking about why study philosophy as a Christian, especially given that verse in Colossians that says not to be taken captive by vain philosophies of men or sure, whatever. Sure. And I, I said that just because you just because the Bible's inerrant, which you know we affirm at, at Crown, just because the Bible's inerrant doesn't mean your interpretation of the Bible is inerrant, which means you're always having to. You're, you're always having to go through the process of second-guessing the way you're looking at it. And philosophy helps yeah, with that. Yeah. And rhetoric helps with that. Of, of course, rhetoric Absolutely, is, yeah. is originally a subset of philosophy like every other type of <laughs> learning. So Right. And I'll, I'll also uh, add, I mean, just to go back to Aristotle's rhetoric, which I'm, I'm teaching in my advanced comp class right now. That's why it's fresh on my mind. I don't want listeners to think I've got this encyclopedic knowledge of Aristotle. You should um, let the listeners think you have an encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of Aristotle. Sprezzatura. When, you know, when Aristotle says that uh, rhetoric does not have a subject matter particular to itself, which of course is an answer to the objection of Socrates and the Gorgias, uh, he does, like I say, uh, use that metaphor from the theater to demonstrate that, you know, it is like dialectic, one of those things that permeates all things. So in other words, rhetoric is a part not only of philosophy, like you said, Michael, but it's also a part of law. It's a part of medicine. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a part of theology. So, you know, I, I would agree with you that, I mean, this process of discovery is, you know, something that our students could really, really learn from. Should, should we explain what we mean by dialectic, just in case people listening are not as into Plato as you and I are? Yeah, go ahead and take a run at it. Dialectic, on, on the one hand, is, is of course, Socrates' practice in uh, making his arguments. It's talking in dialogue. But it's also the kind of defining of things before you begin to argue. It's, it's figuring out the truth before you, you can argue for the truth, if you want to think of it that way. Right. That's, that's how, that's and how if I you read think it. About it. Yeah, and if you think about it as a philosophic literary genre, instead of stating your thesis and then supporting it, what a dialectic does is it asserts something that's usually conventional wisdom, and then it negates that assertion. Then it makes a second assertion based on the negation. Then it makes another assertion based on that negation. Then it negates that, and so on and so forth, until you run out of pages. And 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 Plato says in the Phaedrus that that's where you have to start. You you, you can't right, begin right. with rhetoric. You have to begin with dialectic. And Aristotle and Aristotle seems to go agrees along with that. in the yeah. rhetoric. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
And for that matter, Kreider agrees in his chapter on invention. Right. So we're in good company, Michael. Uh, I hope so. Well, at any rate, let's let's move on from invention, which is the first of, of Cicero's canons of rhetoric, uh, to organization or arrangement, as I always call it, just because I like that word better. Um, probably my favorite chapter in this book is the one about organization. My favorite idea that Kreider articulates for my students is called imminent design. Uh, so, Michael, when you taught this book, did you get much use from Kreider's section on the classical oration, which he derives from Cicero, or did you mainly run with the idea of imminent design for your assignments when it comes to organization, or did you do something entirely different with the organization chapter? I ta- and organization is something I've always had trouble with myself, so teaching this book was very helpful to me, because I never uh-huh. knew how to explain how they should organize their papers before. So mm-hmm. I, uh, we talked about the structure of a classical oration, the, 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 the various parts of it, and I said, um, this is one way to go through it. You don't have to do it necessarily this way, but this is a, this is a way that has been tested through time, a conservative statement in itself. <laughs> and then, then we did go through um, a few of Kreider's alternate versions. Like he talks about how to do an introduction and different ways of doing an introduction, different ways of doing a conclusion, which is something um, freshman comp students at every school I've ever taught at have trouble with. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. likes doing a conclusion. And Kreider uh, is very good at explaining why you shouldn't do a summary style conclusion for a three-page uh, three paper, which is good uh-huh. because uh, students love those summary conclusions. And I didn't, I didn't get any this semester <laughs> because I, uh, I, I went with Kreider and told them they can't use them. Um, and then, uh, and then we did talk about eminent design. And by eminent design, uh, he, he just means that the design somehow flows naturally out of what you're arguing. Mm-hmm. So it kind of presents itself, and that's something you have to learn to be sensitive to, in my opinion. Right, right. In, in my uh, discovery, not in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> in the experience you're using as a basis for your claim. Right, right, right. In my opinion's so much, so much quicker to say. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I've got you scared to use it now, though. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I mean, I'll, I'll admit, I didn't use the classical oration much at all. I told my students, you know, if you want to use it as one template, that's fine. But I gave them three or four other templates. Uh, one starting from first principles and going to a particular demonstration. Yeah, I did that too. Uh, w- one going from particular examples and then trying to establish a pattern among the data. Uh, one being a chain of causation. Uh, and what I tell them is, and I, and you know, Michael, I, this is where you're rubbing off on me after these year, after these, how many years have we been reading existentialism together? Uh, but I, but I tell them that, you know, when they organize their paper, when they arrange their material, uh, ultimately it is their responsibility to their reader. Uh, so they are writing for their reader. And the question they need to ask is if my reader has this arrangement or this arrangement, which one is going to get those ideas across more clearly and more effectively? And then what I tell them is there's always a right answer and there's always a wrong answer, but I don't know what it is until you've already put the paper together. Interesting. And that, that's a good way which, to go about it. Which terrifies them. It, it creates, you know, a good deal of angst for them. But what I tell them is, you know, you, you guys are stepping out of that high school writing model and into real educated adult writing, and you do have this responsibility. Because well, the, the, 
you solve one of the problems of imminent design, which is students can hear about it and assume that it will just come to them naturally. And right. then whatever they write is the imminent design. And that is not exactly true. <laughs> uh, no, whatever you no. write might be the imminent design once you're an excellent writer. But as an 18-year-old freshman at a small Christian college, it is probably not going to come naturally. You probably are going to have to think about it. It's imminent to sure. the topic, not imminent to you. Right, <laughs> That's right. Necessarily. And I mean, I'll say just because, you know, I've been working like a dog on my dissertation here lately, even at the level where you're writing your doctoral dissertation, the design that is imminent to the subject matter isn't immediately intuitive. Uh, it's something that, you know, requires deliberation about what the writer expects. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's time consuming and it's, it's tough. I, I really like the imminent design idea because students are often taught in high school that writing is this kind of factory belt process. Yes. Where, uh -huh. where everything needs to have the same, that stupid five-paragraph uh, essay structure with the three-prong uh -huh. thesis statement that Kreider yes. so expertly tears to pieces, but very gentlemanly. <laughs> um, and, and we can talk about why he doesn't like the, the three-prong three thesis statement in a, in a second. But um, uh -huh. So it, it, it's really good that he says there is not a formula. I'm not going to give you a formula. Here are a few ideas, but you're going to have to think about this and treat your essay as an individual the way we're supposed to treat um, people. You treat, treat your essay as an individual as well, because it is. Right. And, uh, uh -huh. and you come up with something much better than if you just sent it down the factory belt like you do in high school. Right, right. Now, I will say for our listeners who do teach writing or who teach any college – uh, because I'm a person who thinks that you ought to be writing in any discipline in college, mm -hmm. uh, that one of the practices that I have found that actually makes imminent design possible at an undergraduate level uh, is draft meetings with students. Oh, absolutely. And the, way, the way that I tend to do it, I, I know, Michael, that you do want, you know these marathon con conference days. I don't have the stamina for that. Uh, so what I do is I break them up into groups of three or four, and I have them transmit their drafts to each other and to me 24 hours ahead of time so that we can all look at each other's drafts. And then one of the exercises I give them, I give them a commentary guide, uh, ask them, all right, imagine an alternative arrangement of this material that you think might be more effective. Give an outline of how you would outline it differently. And, you know, usually I get at least a couple different ways to arrange the thing. And then in that meeting, I can actually turn to the writer and say, okay, given your initial draft, given this person's way and given my way, which one of those as a reader would you find most compelling? And that's the way that, you know, we can actually teach eminent design as a faculty, as a power. Oh, and that's one idea. of the things that I like. What now? What a good idea. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that that's something that I like most about Kreider is he never turns loose of that idea that rhetoric is a skill it's a power right uh so i mean i always compare it to basketball right i mean if you receive a pass on the perimeter uh you always have the option to dribble shoot or pass but there is no formula for which one you do given the positions of the other players on the court right i mean the decisions that you make about whether to dribble shoot or pass always come down to your skill level as a basketball player and they constitute your skill level as a basketball player right Unless you're Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, in which pass is never an option. <laughs> um, Had to get that in there. 
I, I was going to say, I, I'm, I may have to steal your idea there, because I will admit, I, I'm not teaching comp this year. I'm teaching writing and lit, which is what gets called comp, too, in a lot of schools. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I pulled the peer review day, because uh, I, I've never had a student come up to me and say, you know what was really helpful in your class? Peer review day. Mostly uh-huh. they don't seem to know how to review their, no matter how much instruction I gave them. But the, the way you're suggesting to do it, um, I will have to think about that for next semester. Uh-huh. Because uh, it, it, it sounds, you know, innovative and interesting and actually helpful. Maybe maybe, maybe the peer review day would not just be a wasted class day the way it always right. has been in my classes. Oh, yeah. And what I do is I usually cancel a couple days of class so that I can actually meet with groups of three or four and read all of their drafts. Um and I, I, I never apologize for canceling those class days because the instruction I do there is more valuable than two of my lectures easily. Um, but, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, that is that exercise, that process is one of the reasons I actually look forward to teaching comp now rather than dreading it. I, and, and I, you know, uh, it's. You, go ahead. You, you made reference to my process, which is I, I cancel one day of class and have optional conferences where students can bring whatever they have on their paper, and, and they will sit with me and talk about it, um, uh-huh. which is, as you say, uh, fairly strenuous. It's it's sometimes six, seven hours of meeting Well, yeah, students. you and Victoria both do that, and I mean, I'm always just amazed at the fact that you can make it through a day like that, because I would... I would uh, fall apart by the end of the day. Sometimes three or four days in a row, but not only that, that's how I met Victoria. That's how we got together. Well, there I, you go. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've ever told this story in the podcast. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it now. Uh, uh, at UGA, you know, all the TAs have to share offices. So I said, forget that. And I held all my conferences at the coffee shop on campus. And uh, mm-hmm. Victoria did the same. And we ended up sitting next to each other and talking between conferences. And that's how I asked her out. And that's why we're married, I suppose. So I, uh, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if it's the most effective way to deal with students. But <laughs> I have a soft stop spot for it for reasons that are not entirely logical. There you go. All right. <laughs> so student conferences uh, brought me my wife. There you go. And it, it made me look forward to comp, which is not nearly as significant. So <laughs> you always have to one-up me, Farmer. <laughs> um well michael moving on from the second canon arrangement or organization to the third canon which is style uh this is the last canon that Kreider treats because frankly when you are doing writing rather than oration uh memorizing your paper doesn't make a whole lot of sense and delivery usually consists in attaching it to an email or printing it out so right not a lot of not a lot of instruction to be done there. <laughs> Although uh, some, that's still above the the uh, ability of many students. To be fair. Well, yeah. <laughs> maybe he should have had a maybe he should have had a section on how to attach a file. <laughs> although, although I will say how that to set I have, margins. <laughs> I have rediscovered the canon of delivery, largely because in my English 102 class, which is the second semester of our composition sequence. Uh, we do two semesters of composition and one of literature, so we actually have three required English semesters. Oh, wow. Uh, I actually do web rhetoric, in which delivery actually becomes quite important, even separate from style. So it's kind of you know an interesting rehabilitation of that canon. But let's talk about style. Um, you know, the first, cha- the first half of Kreider's style chapter is interesting enough. Uh, it's your standard... Frankly, what I used to do a lot of in freshman comp and don't have time for much anymore because I'm spending so much time on arrangement, 
uh, things on a sentence level to make the prose more readable. Yeah, uh, but, gra- but the grammar part of the chapter- and, and syntax and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But the part of the chapter that I like the most is the one that details clause combination. Uh, and I know that I focus heavily on clause combination. I've, I've even developed a, a chat room-based classroom exercise that I use frequently in my own composition classes. It's something that students have actually said, this helped me write better. Uh, I don't know if I'm unusual in that respect in the fact that I'm so obsessed with clause combination. Michael, when it comes to sentence-level teaching, where does your attention usually fall? I, please explain first what you mean by clause combination, because I'm not entirely sure on that. Oh, okay, okay. What I will do is uh, I will generate usually four or five, sometimes as many as six, short clauses. You know, just subject, verb, object, uh, not a whole lot of words. And I will post all four, all five, all six of them on a chat room. And then in groups of, of however many students there are divided by how many laptops there are in the room, uh, they will combine those clauses into one or more compound and complex and compound complex sentences. And then when they post them up on the board, what we can do is we can actually look at the variations in the way that they combine them and talk about how those conjunctions and sentence structure actually generate different meanings for different sentences. Oh, that's And it's one of those things that when students can actually see it happen, when they can get that feedback in real time, uh, it really does turn a light on for them that the way that they structure their sentence is not simply decorative and it's not simply appeasing a picky professor, but it actually generates meaning in what they're writing. That's another exercise so, I think I'm going to have to steal from you. On the sentence all level, right, all right. <laughs> on the sentence level I, I, when I talk about clauses, I am mostly talking about sentence fragments, comma splices, few sentences, things like yeah, that. Yeah, and certainly we treat that. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, um, and, and so I, I, I haven't really talked about how to construct a sentence in a way that makes it rhetorically effective, uh, so that is, a, that is a gap in the way I teach freshman comp that I will have to correct next semester. Well, and the other thing that I like to do is, once they have done it, is I will turn to the group that wrote the sentence after we've talked about whether it's a simple sentence, compound sentence, complex, so on and so forth, and I'll say, all right, you know, this conjunction that you use, what relationship between ideas does it set up? And, you know, when they are actually talking about those relationships with ideas, I can then turn around on their actual graded written projects. And when we're talking about their thesis statements, I can actually ask them, okay, in the, pa- in the body of the paper that you've written, what's the main relationship between these ideas? All right, let's craft a thesis statement that reflects those ideas so that your reader can know right from the outset what relationship is coming down the line. And again, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, uh, pretty much since I refined it. Now, at first, you know, I had the chat room. I was, I was monkeying around with some things. But now that I've, I'm in my sixth semester now of doing chat room-based sentence-level exercises, and my, my focus is, I mean, just mercilessly on clause combination, I mean... Almost every semester, that's what I get the most positive comments about in my evaluations. I mean, that's just an exercise that is dynamite for freshman students who have never really thought about sentence structure. So, yeah, readers, listeners, see, Michael, you're contagious in that way, too. Yeah, I screw Uh, that up all the time. (laughs) You know, these are 
the things that your Christian Humanist podcast hosts think about on a day-to-day basis. This is our practice. This is our trade. So, uh, again, I hope that this is interesting to you all. If not, Michael, I'm I'm, I'm always interested in talking about talking shop. So, I well, hope that you is, are. This, this conversation <laughs> has been interesting for me, but then again, it, as you say, this is my job. So, it, it's it's yeah. very practical for me in a way that it's probably not practical for a lot of our. Uh, right. listeners, but maybe, maybe they'll learn how they could, you know, maybe, maybe they'll learn that they had a great freshman comp class or maybe they'll learn that their freshman comp class, uh, was weak. That could be. And I will I, say, there's I, an awful I, lot I, of weak I, freshman comp classes. And I know, cause I taught, I taught them at UGA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I mean, just as another commercial break, I know that we've got academics in our listeners among our listeners. There we go. Who teach psychology and other subjects other than English. And I'll, I'll just encourage you all. I mean, I really do think that getting your students writing more is going to help them learn your subject matter. And, and, I, recommend, uh, and I realize I recommend Kreider's, Kreider's book to everyone. Um, it's a short book. It's a quick read. I have a, a friend here at Crown who teaches science, and he, he read it and said it was one of the best books he'd read. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely something worth looking into even if you're not teaching rhetoric directly uh you will you will find things that help you in the way you think and the way you write and the way you teach oh absolutely absolutely and you know part of this is the fact that i have for the last two and a half academic years been the director of a writing across the curriculum program uh so of course i'm going to be a big advocate for this kind of stuff but i really do believe in it right as well so um well, you're the one who convinced me to assign a paper in my philosophy class, which I wasn't going to do. Yeah, this which is true. means you're going to be the one grading all 36 of them. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I mean, I and I really do believe this as well. And you probably got your syllabus mapped out, but I mean, one of the things that I discovered is that when I do those peer review days and cancel class and actually look at their drafts. The draft that I gra- that I evaluate for a grade goes a lot quicker because I'm already familiar with. Oh, absolutely. What the argument is supposed to be, and I'm familiar with you know the suggestions that not only I have made but their peers have made. And, and so I'll, I, I'll, I, I'll tell you this: I have never seen a student make substantial improvement over over the course of a semester without coming to those conferences. Yeah, yeah. Because they're they're optional absolutely. in my class because. Uh, they involve such a time commitment for me that I'm certainly not going to make students come to them. Right. Uh, but when, when, when not, not every student who comes improves a hundred percent, but, uh, every student I've ever seen who starts off as a D student and ends up as a B or an A student came to those conferences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael wrapping up with Kreider's last chapter. Uh, I also like this book because I can teach my students that their education at the college level bestows upon them a certain degree of responsibility or officio if my latin declension is right now i've I've found that introducing students to that connection offends some of them it liberates others it draws sneers from some more Um, in your own experience when you've taught that last chapter uh, how do students respond to the possibility that their education is for the sake of something beyond themselves um, at a Christian college, it is, uh, I, I think, easier to get that across than it would be if I tried to use this book at UGA. And again, it's not an explicitly Christian book in any way. Um, I have no idea mm-hmm. what Kreider's religious beliefs are. But, uh, Me neither. 
but uh, I actually, we, we talked about that on the, I think the very first day of class last semester, we talked about how it's for something higher than yourself. And, and we talked about the Great Commission and things like that, because this is a school that's heavily focused on international missions and things like that. And I said, well, you need, uh, you need rhetoric to be able to share the gospel. And, you know, they're all on board with that. And it also, it, it has the advantage of making me not look like a heathen. <laughs> um, so actually, I, I, got, a, I got pushed back. I, I didn't get pushed back. I got people who were kind of apathetic and thus were too uh-huh. apathetic to push back. But um, I also had students who really, really got into it. And one uh, one student in particular, I remember, we, we have to do six-week evaluations here. And uh, uh-huh. she, she she wrote on her evaluation that, that this class had convinced her that she wanted a liberal arts education instead of just vocational training. And I thought, oh, well, cool. it, you know, that's one cool. student tells you that a semester, you feel like you've done your job. Oh sure, um, sure. So uh, yeah, yeah. I I I didn't get a whole lot of argument from them on that point. Um, some of them are more inclined to see their education as just a means to an end than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have several uh, more or less vocational majors here at Crown, and and those stu- those students tend to see it more as a means to an end, of course. Mm-hmm. But yeah, even, I mean, even I, they, I think, got go something ahead. out of it. Well, good, good. I mean. What what I often get at Emmanuel is this idea that, you know, my, I guess, spiritual life, for lack of a better phrase, is something different from my professional life. So, I mean, I think that, you know, this idea that Kreider wraps up with that there is genuinely an office of assertion, which, by the way, he that phrase he borrows from Richard Weaver, um, I, I, I think at least takes a step in the right direction of bringing students close to the possibility that, you know, what they are doing educationally is part and parcel of a, a human life to put, you know, not too fine a point on it. Uh, that, you know, if you separate what you are doing in the workplace too cleanly from what you're doing in the rest of your life, then you are not being an authentic human being in one of those spheres at least. Right. (laughs) Right, and so, so I mean, and, and one solution there is to see all of your education as, in some sense, connected, which is the way I always looked at it, which is not as popular an idea uh, as I'd hoped it would be. Right, even, right. Even at Christian now, let me ask you this: you, you you taught this in conjunction with the Phaedrus, and I mean, the Phaedrus itself, you know, sort of wraps up with this idea that uh, rhetoric is something that bears responsibility with it and that, you know, the responsibility is to guide people towards goodness. Uh, is that too lofty a claim for your students? Do they say, well, that's not what's happening in freshman comp. They are inclined to, you, you get, you get the question, how is this going to make me, how's this going to make me a better writer? How's this going to make me a better writer? Well, the answer is it teaches you how to pursue the good and, I don't, I'm, you know, if Kreider's right, you can't be a noble writer without pursuing the good. But uh, uh-huh. so, so, sometimes they don't quite get that. I, I, I right. got much more pushback about Plato than I did about Kreider. Okay, so in other words, for them, I mean, good writing is an entirely instrumental category. Right, right. It's something more like Gorgias, in other words. Which is, I mean, to be fair, what they were probably taught in high school. Oh, sure, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, you know, I have been guilty of using that sort of device when I taught at the University of Georgia, you Mm -hmm. know, I I would say that, you know, I don't care about the content of your papers as long as you do it well. 
But uh, you know, one of the nice things about using Kreider as your textbook is that you can bust your students on being base rhetoric, and and you know they understand how serious a charge that is. So oh, I remember, okay. I remember one student. My first assignment in the, in freshman comp is to write about, um, write a dual description paper, uh -huh. and, and I, I forget which issue, what issue he'd taken both sides of. But he said, uh -huh. it's true that the Bible says not to do this, but then the Bible says a lot of things that are interpreted a lot of ways, and then he just moves on. Oh, wow. And I said, that is, you know, that's very obviously base rhetoric. You're not treating, you're not treating your subject with appropriate respect, and, and you're, uh -huh. you're not treating your audience with appropriate respect. And, you know, he knew exactly what I meant because we'd gone through Kreider. So it's helpful for things like that. Um, if, if somebody turned something in like that at UGA, I don't know... I, I, obviously, I would have marked it, but I, I wouldn't have had the words to describe what was so awful about it from a rhetorical standpoint. Uh -huh, Other, uh -huh. you know, I'd say you're breezing over this, which makes it makes it sound like a technical error rather than a kind of morality issue. Right, which right. it is, and that and that and that is one thing that I do own a debt of gratitude to conservative youth ministers on. Uh, is that at Emmanuel, I don't have to have that conversation where I say, you know, I don't want you to give me opinion because opinion is the first thought that comes to your head. I want you to seek out the truth and tell me what it is. At UGA, I would almost always get someone to say, well, do you mean the truth to you or the truth to me? Oh. And I would say, I, you know, and I would always say, well, the truth of the thing. The freshman relativist. Yeah, yeah, and I get that a lot less frequently at Emanuel College. Right, I'm sure. I'm sure. That, I'm sure the opposite problem is actually the big problem at Emanuel. Not as much as you would think. I mean, once we deal with you know uh, the idea of persona and the idea of disclosure as you know process of discovering truth, generally, I mean, students are pretty much on board with the possibility that you could always re refine what you're doing. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's one of those things I, you know, uh, it's probably going to sound chauvinistic, but, you know, I'm at a Christian college now, so I, frankly, I am a little bit chauvinistic, but I mean, the airheaded freshman relativism is much less a problem at Emmanuel College than it was at University of Georgia. Now, what I deal with on the other extreme, unfortunately, uh, is when I teach the senior capstone course. I get students who transferred to Emmanuel after two or three years at a state university, and I have to deal with airheaded senior relativism, which is worse <laughs> in its way. Yeah, because they they have convinced they have become convinced that you know that is the substance of a college education, and therefore when I try to teach them in this theology course that they have a responsibility to seek the truth of the thing. Uh, that they, you know, they will not reach it while they are mortals, but they are always responsible to seek for it. Uh, it's always, well, that's your, that's your opinion. And I how, think, oh, how dear tedious. <laughs> what now? How tedious. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I and I, I don't get this very often, but every once in a while, I get a truly belligerent transfer student who says. Well, that might be true here in the Emanuel bubble, but out in the real world. <laughs> the, the real world of the University of Georgia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I realize that's a big tangent, but I mean, it's funny that the 
undergraduate relativism I rarely encounter in freshmen anymore, but I encounter it all the time among the seniors who transferred in. <laughs> but I mean, is that is that something? And I mean, I I don't know if you how many are if you've taught any upper division classes, but I mean, I, I had one you... 300 level class and, and that was not the problem I had with that class last semester. And this semester, okay, all my, right. my upper level class is a grammar class uh-huh. where I do tell them, you know, not, not that grammar is relative, but that, that it's at some point arbitrary, you know, somebody has decided these rules and that's why I gotcha. it sometimes I gotcha. don't make sense. Um, so no, uh, I haven't had that problem, although I, you know, for all I know, other people here have that problem. My my problem is is more a a strident. My way is the truth, and I won't listen to anything else. Not not from all students, not even ah, from most okay. students. But okay. when I run into problems regarding the relativism uh, spectrum, that's the problem I run into. Right, and see the the nice thing is we've got a strong biblical studies faculty in our ministry department so the boogeymen of textual relativism are the ministry professors at our school so gotcha. <laughs> I, I don't have to play that role <laughs> and by the way none of them are relativists and they're all probably more conservative than i am if you think about you know various schools of seminary training uh but because these students have never encountered anything like modern german style biblical scholarship they're just utterly terrified by you know the fact that they call genesis one poetry it'd be fun when they go to, to a seminary i'm sure yeah yeah well depending on the seminary they go to i guess well yeah that's precisely it I, there are seminaries and then there are seminaries right 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 <laughs> and, and, and and less said on that on this show the better well yeah yeah because I went to seminary and I've got strong opinions that I speak when I'm not being recorded, but strong I'm not going to do it here. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I've, <laughs> I've become the knights who say knee. <laughs> well, Michael, I think we are now early morning punchy, uh, so I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. Uh, first of all, if you are missing David Grubbs, I assure you Michael and I are missing him more. Uh, he keeps us on topic and keeps us from these goofy tangents. Uh, but I do want to thank Michael Farmer for joining me in this conversation. Uh, I want to thank Scott Kreider. Michael, I think I'm actually going to email him and see if you know he's interested in listening at all. He probably won't be since he teaches at a conservative Catholic university. But I could be surprised. Um, but next week, Michael, what are we going to be discussing? We're going to be talking in further detail about a book you reviewed on the uh, blog a few weeks ago, Philip Carey's Good News for Anxious Christians, which is a terrible title for a book that all uh, Christian college students should read. And speaking of email, I did email Carey and tell him how much I appreciated the book. Um, and he wrote back a very nice uh, thank you message. Oh, very good, very good. So it's nice It's nice when um, people you respect are, are friendly to you. Yeah, it really is. So I, I, I stand by that. I, uh, I, I'd never heard of it before you reviewed it, and then you, you told me to go read it, and I read it in one sitting. And uh, oh man, <laughs> all, uh, all, all Christian college students should read that book. It would absolutely change the way our colleges operate. But we will, uh, we will discuss that in further detail next week. I think we should. Well, listeners, you can find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. I will say that if you want to join our forums at christianhumanist.org slash chf, 
go ahead and register for the boards, but then also send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com letting us know that you're a real person. Uh, we are now up to probably a couple dozen spam bots a week. Oh, it's more than that. It's, it's got it's got to be 10 or 15 a day. Yeah, it probably is. Every time I check uh, my email, so, there's a new one. So if you want to join the forum, uh, that is fine, listeners. Just let us know via email so we know you're a real person. You can also, of course, find us on iTunes, where we all always appreciate reviews and five-star ratings. Remember, the more ratings and the more reviews we get on iTunes, the more podcast listeners find our material, and the more fun we have because we got more friends to talk with. Uh, please comment on the blog. As Michael said, he's going to be writing a book review soon. Uh, when I get my dissertation done, which is actually less than a month away, which is a bit spooky, I'm going to try to start writing some more material, so check back there uh also real quick i just want to pitch the athens christian church sermon podcast feed uh as you might have discerned uh if you are my facebook friend uh i've been preaching at athens christian church for the last several weeks uh because of some circumstances that have left us without a full-time minister uh we've started recording those as podcasts you can search for it uh, under Athens Christian Church on iTunes, or you can go to AthensChristianChurch.org and find that podcast feed. Uh, I would always appreciate feedback on my sermons because, of course, I get uh, the wonderful people of the congregation talking to me afterwards. But it's Georgia, so they're very polite. Uh, if you've got some background in that and you want to give me some pointers, I'd be glad to hear them. All right. So that is an extended web stuff segment of our out of our exiting material the christian humanist radio network there you go there you go multiple podcast streams all kinds of groovy things man uh so until next week when you'll be joined again just by michael farmer and nathan gilmore but also on behalf of david grubbs i want to leave you listeners with this let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger Race towards another grave